Let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Stuart, could I ask you just to turn me down ever so slightly? For one minute, I wonder if you would turn to your neighbor and discuss what you think the answer to this question is. What was, the most, what was the subject most taught about by Jesus? What was the subject most taught about by Jesus? You've got one minute. Go for it. Okay, I won't do a test, it's uh, not a test, but just to, to get you thinking, because the answers might surprise you. One analysis of this question suggested that love came 43rd, and just on a number of times it was talked about, not necessarily on how important it is. Uh, forgiveness, 32nd. Money came 4th. Father God came second. And top of the list, the most taught about subject by Jesus was the kingdom of God. Yet how often do we talk about the kingdom of God? Or when did it last feature in your decision making when you went to the shops? It makes me wonder, is the kingdom of God quite low in the order of our priorities? Does personal preference, cultural norms, or the survival of our denomination come more important than the kingdom of God? Or when we come to decision-making as a church, what do we base it upon? For example, last week we received 70 feedback forms regarding the server services, which was great. And if you haven't done one yet and you want to give us some feedback, either positive or negative or whatever, get one and, and hand it in today. Today's your last day. Uh, the responses, we're going to type them up, we're going to discuss them as a session, and that will eventually inform what we do next summer. But let's be honest, there are broadly two groups, those that like the current format and those that would prefer to establish the, the summer Sunday school. There are competing values here. How is session, not me, how is session to make a decision on that? It may be though not guaranteed, that a kingdom-focused discussion might help us discern what is the best way forward, even if it doesn't please everybody. And so today we begin a new teaching series which will run for eight weeks in total and it will focus upon the kingdom of God. Each week we will draw upon a different portion of the scriptures from Genesis, then ending up eventually in Revelation. And it's my hope that it will not only sharpen our kingdom focus, but that we might also see the kingdom of God as a binding theme through the scriptures from beginning to end, although each part will add a distinctive contribution. And we might also see through the series how the scriptures hold together, that although there are 66 books written by 40 authors over the space of 2,000 years, that in fact, really, the Bible is one book with one main author 
and one core story throughout. So let's get into today's passage. The, the phrase, the kingdom of God, you cannot find it in the Old Testament. It's not there. It uniquely begins with Jesus in each of the four New Testament Gospels. And yet the idea, the reality of the kingdom of God is there throughout the Old Testament. We take, for example, Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to joy with cries of, shout with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. Clearly, the psalmist understands God as King, and the people of Israel did as well, but they got their theology from what they understood of God, from the revelation God had given of Himself that He is King, and as King, He has a kingdom. And that understanding of God as king has its roots all the way back in Genesis 1. We read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, Let there be light. These words reveal that not only is God creator, they reveal that God alone is sovereign and eternal. He alone existed before all else, and it was by His powerful Word, His kingly command, that our universe came into being. And so, God is therefore the rightful ruler and king over all creation. I wonder if that shocks you at all, or makes you a little bit uncomfortable. It might not, because you've maybe heard it a lot, but it probably should. And when it was first being taught about 4,000 years ago, it was a truly shocking claim because this teaching clashed with the religions and perspectives of the day. In contrast to other ancient Near Eastern religions of the time, Genesis 1 is making a shocking rejection of their claim about how the universe came into being. There were several creation myths around at the time. This is one portrayal of them. And it was particularly from nearby Babylonia. But they claimed that creation could have come about by a couple of different methods, either a conflict between good and evil beings, or that it came about by procreation of those divine beings, or that all creation was somehow eternal. And against all that, Genesis claims the Lord, Yahweh, does not produce or bring forth. He creates from nothing. For He alone is Almighty God and eternal. He has no equal. He alone is King of all creation. And this teaching would have jarred with the thinking of the day. It would have shocked, even angered some, just as it does today. For in our day, we have twin pressures from our surrounding cultures, do we not? Maybe more than just these two. There is, on the one hand, that pressure from an increasingly forceful atheism which seeks to limit the sphere of faith. And on the other hand, there is that pressure to say that all religions lead to God and the church just needs to like that, that maybe no faith is more true than another. But I don't think either is wise, accurate, or good for society. On that one hand, with the forceful atheism, there's plenty of evidence from history that when a society removes religious freedom and pursues a purely atheistic culture, then it's en route to become an unhealthy society. You could, at the extreme end, cite 
Stalin's Russia. And as for an approach which says that all religions are equally true, well, how does that make sense? You can't have one saying all matter is eternal whilst another doesn't. They can't both be true. You can't have one which says God cared enough to come into his creation whilst another says we reject that concept completely and are horrified by such a claim. You can't have both. These are not differences we can or, or should gloss over. It cannot be both and. It truly is one or the other. And in our culture, in our day, that makes us feel quite uncomfortable. It almost sounds unloving, does it not? But claiming, as Genesis does, that there is one eternal king and he has no equal, I don't think is arrogance or intolerance. There's still, we're not going to say that they can't be there in our society. We're not going to try and attack them or, or go against them. We recognize them as fellow human beings and value and love them so. But logic and reason demand that the different claims be weighed, surely. They can't all be equally true. And to allow this claim of Genesis to be cast out, to appease our postmodern mindset, may be to the detriment of others. Because if you do, why would you bother exploring the Christian faith? Why would you bother when everything is relative? It's whatever you want it to be, or everything is equal. There's no impetus then to really explore it because everything is relative or equal. And if that's the case, then, then no one finds Jesus as Savior and God and their Lord. No one finds him as King because they don't need to. But introducing them to Jesus may well be the most loving thing you could do for anyone. And it's only when we hold on to the claim that there is one eternal king do we then begin to lay a foundation for a faith that is robust and offers genuine hope to our broken world. Because in this world which God created in love and upon which he established his kingdom, the Lord also created all life. And the pinnacle of his creation was mankind, you and I. We read in Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Only humanity is described in this manner. Only humanity is created in the image of God. So men and women are set apart from the rest of creation, giving each one great dignity, for we bear the image of God within us. And God places his image bearers, this mankind, in a garden, telling them to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and enjoy the produce of the land. God also gives them a mandate, a, a purpose, and only one boundary given for their good in Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so in the place he has given, the people God has made can continue to enjoy his blessing as they fulfill his mandate and remain within his rule. This understanding of what is portrayed here in Genesis gives us a pattern of the kingdom. And one author summarized it, Graham Goldsworthy was his name, this way. The kingdom of God is God's people, 
in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing. This is a phrase we'll keep returning to during the series because in different parts of the Scriptures, different elements of this phrase are emphasized, others fall out of of focus or are marred completely. But the pattern of the kingdom is laid down here in Genesis 1 and 2. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. In these chapters, at the beginning of the story, we begin to see the pattern of the kingdom as it should be. And there are three points of application. First, we're created with a purpose. We read, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then in Genesis 2, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. As the image bearers of the king, we are given the royal purpose of stewarding creation. We have to take care of it rather than abuse it. And so matter matters to God, for it is part of his kingdom. God is not only concerned with our souls, he's also concerned with our bodies and the whole material creation. And so it's right to speak with the children about what kind of toothbrush are they going to use. Indeed, all of us, and raise that question of how our products and how our lifestyle affect the material world. We understand ourselves to be part of God's people. Well, then, how are we living under His rule and heeding His call to steward creation well? And if we're not, how could we steward better? Secondly, these chapters also highlight that we were not only created with a purpose, we were created with a need. And that need being a need of community. We read in Genesis 2, but for, or read in Genesis 2, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God made a woman and he brought her to the man. Until Eve was made, Adam had no companionship with another like himself. And earlier in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We are made with a need for community. Just as no man apparently is an island, neither are God's people. Genesis 1 and 2 make it clear that even within the perfection at the beginning of creation, God's people within God's kingdom need one another. And they were given to one another as part of God's blessing. We have a need for community. We need one another. And so it's right to highlight today the opportunity the Guild affords you and I. We could also obviously add Friendship Plus, the coffee morning, or friendship groups. So why not give one of these a try as they restart in the next month or so? But can I also raise an issue I've become aware of in team meetings and in uh, recent pastoral visits? You're probably aware that we are a, a reasonably big church, and that means it's easy to get lost. It's easy to be overlooked. And it's easy to forget that some of our older generations have far fewer friends than they did a few years ago, or even this time last year. And they can start to feel isolated and undervalued. 
they too have a need for community. So can we be on the lookout, not only for new people, but also for those that might be getting lost in the crowd? They too are God's people, and they matter in God's kingdom. Lastly, in God's kingdom, God's people were created to enjoy, to enjoy God's blessing by living under God's rule. But that is not only about living according to God's laws and ways, living under His rule is also about enjoying God Himself and enjoying His rest. We read in Genesis 2, by the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all His work. This is the climax of creation, the day upon which God rested for his work was complete. We do not then hear of an eighth day, nor do we return to the first day, for we were meant to see that the seventh day continues. And so God's rest continues. Not that God is sitting with his feet up, for he sustains our very creation, but he has rested from creating, and so the seventh day continues. And it's within that rest that creation, and especially humanity, is meant to live. We are meant to live in God's rest, to share in it, enjoying creation and enjoying relationship with God. To live under the rule of God is to live within His rest and to enjoy God Himself. But I wonder, do you enjoy God right now? Maybe you don't enjoy God because you don't know God. You don't know Him as your friend and as your heavenly King. You don't know Him as your heavenly Father. And that may be because you haven't put your faith in Him yet. And if that's you, I'd encourage you to get a copy of last week's sermon when it goes on the website or via CD and listen to that message about believing in the one who is the King. Yet there could be any number of reasons why you're not enjoying God. You may be feeling distance, as the picture suggests. And if that's you, can I encourage you to tell someone? And if you can, tell someone whose faith encourages you. A number of years ago, I got into a bit of a rut in my own faith. I wasn't reading the Bible, I wasn't praying. Days would go by, weeks probably, and then in one church service, I felt challenged by my minister, and I decided to go speak with my good friend, Ollie, who you met back in January. His faith is a real encouragement to me. We started to meet up to, to talk about faith, to talk about life, and over the course of time, my faith came alive again, and I started to enjoy God once more. Friends, maybe a similar tactic might help you. For we were created to enjoy God and His rest, to live under His rule alongside His people, sharing in His blessing. For this is what Genesis reveals about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. This is the pattern of the kingdom. I pray that as we journey through the series together, may we have a more kingdom-minded orientation to to our lives, to what we do as church, leaning into our purpose, helping to meet our need of community, and growing in our enjoyment of God.
May it be so. Amen.